are listening to the Fuerte Network. Back to We Are Home Arizona, an immigrant podcast, a podcast for immigrants by immigrants, telling the stories of our communities all across the state of Arizona and advocating for our rights, especially right now for the We Are Home campaign, trying to get this Build Back Better plan passed. With you, I am Dani Orona here with my uh, partner, Carlos Navarro. Carlos, how are you doing today? Welcome back. First of all, this is the first time that we're hanging out since D.C. How are you, how are you doing, man? How's, how's, uh, how are you doing back from the trip? Uh, what's up, Danny? Como estas? Uh, I'm doing good. Just getting back into the flow of, of being back in Arizona, away from the the 30 degrees. That was a huge difference, a huge jump, especially on our crossover from Detroit. So we went from desert to like super, super cold to like estaba aguantable <laughs> in D.C. and then back to blizzard and showing up in, in Arizona back with our overcoats and everything. It was too much. It was too hot. <laughs> Coming back for the first couple of days, I actually was just out and about without a sweater, just my T-shirt and just whatever. And then, uh, of course, my wife, she's like super bundled and everything. How are you not cold? Like, I just got back from D.C. <laughs> like, I, I saw snow, okay? Like, I walked in this stuff. So I'm I, I'm good right now. Trust me. You know, I mean, the buildings were, were crazy, all the architecture. But what was crazy was watching people with shorts jog in like 20 degrees yes. i i could never <laughs> that like that to me was super crazy as well especially that first night like uh, we, yeah. first of all we were told it was a block away the restaurant was a block away yeah. that was not a block we we went for a while it was at least a mile i'm pretty sure we're just not used to walking like here <laughs> and then it was uphill too. <laughs> yeah we're, here everything's just car but over there people are actually outside like people are, are walking it's it's a trip and uh, in that, of course, that 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 chill that happened throughout uh, was was very bracing as well. So it was it, it was that kind of kind of workout that the 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 air kind of cooled yourself off, so it wasn't too bad. And overall, I absolutely loved it. I I, I can't wait to go back. So uh, we are home. If you're listening, we're we're what bags are packed. Whenever you guys need us back there, we're we'll, we'll be ready to board that plane. Please hit us up. <laughs> Happily go back. <laughs> uh just to recap a little bit of what uh, also happened back there is that um that first action that we all met at Union Station we all were going to that to that historic park again uh Carlos we I know we it, it was all like stuff that you're used to in the movement how was it trying to get all that on camera like following things around as actual media as as a from from a reporter stance so I I am not a journalist I have not a lot of training in, in this kind of stuff. Um, so it was a little weird to be on the flip side because whenever I've marched, I've seen people with cameras, I've seen people uh, record and ask me for interviews, but it's a little trippy to be on the other side and to actually be the one recording and, and interviewing and taking pictures. People were super nice. People let me like take photos of them, like they posed. But it was a little weird to be on the other side, you know, because I was also like in, in, in La Bola, like in the march, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also had my big ass tripod and exactly trying to to record everything it was it was pretty cool and then there's also that almost extra level of access that you get because the protesters they get stopped by the police and they're like okay this is as far as you can go before you get arrested but for people for in the media journalists and reporters they let them cross that line to get in to get uh, to get the shot of the people doing the 
civil disobedience. The civil disobedience, yes, and and you know, get, getting getting the close up of even the cops themselves, and it, it looks like they're all used to it. Like they're used to being filmed, they're used to being their pictures taken care of. Whereas here in Arizona, you pull a camera out in front of the cop, and you're right away they People jump on crazy. you. Yeah, how was it as a journalist in the face of law enforcement for you? I think it's still pretty scary. So far, I haven't been arrested, uh, but I know in DC it's very streamlined. Like it's a way to to make a statement. Uh, how everything's set up but having the camera in my hand and you know just hearing the the police officer just yell first warning you're gonna get arrested uh, i was like looking around uh, trying to find everyone I, I see you like in the corner like filming everyone and you weren't moving so i didn't move i don't think i got off of the the pavement until like the, the last warning yeah and then then that's when it's all like they give you your phone one like all right like even if you're here unless you're with them you need to get off right now and uh, sure, we went off to the side. And like you said, there's something that they're more used to, whereas the, 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 the people that got arrested, they didn't even get handcuffed, right? They were, they were all sitting down. They're kind of like, all right, your turn. Let's get up and let's go to the back to where they were processing them. No handcuffs, no anything. No one got beat to the ground or anything like that. So it's like it's kind of like routine for them. All right, let's go one at a time. And, and kind of yeah. like a normal day for them. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's pretty much what it, what it ended up being. And, and uh, things like that statements they get made nobody gets hurt everybody's you know doing their job out there and that's the way it's supposed to be you know and that and that's something that people and when i say people i mean like law enforcement should learn from from the police there that are in the middle of everything they do it with calm and without trying to you know make a situation of it themselves because we've seen here in arizona even small demonstrations can turn violent because the first ones to launch something or to uh, start raising their voice or, or start threatening or even getting physical is law enforcement so hopefully they can start taking a page out of dc's book and you know get get it to like we're not trying to attack you we're trying to send a message that's it do it safely no one gets hurt and everyone goes home at the end of the day yeah, and I was really proud of the people um, who chose to get arrested just because I know a lot of them were undocumented. There were a lot of allies, but still all the people that are directly affected, you know, getting arrested, making a statement. Uh, I just want to say I'm super proud of all of you and, and how courageous you guys are. Not, not even any words to describe that. Exactly. And for more information on that, on different actions in, that, that have happened and future actions that we you may be interested into helping out as a volunteer or uh, in any capacity at all, uh, feel free to check us out at fuerte.org or look us up at United We Dream. And uh, we are home, all these great organizations that you guys can get involved in any kind of capacity. The movement needs your help and we need your help as, as much as possible. And if not, there's always that donate button. So make sure you guys donate, donate, donate. So Carlos, I'd like to welcome our special guest for the day. He was out there with us in DC. He was uh, kind of Kind of, uh, for lack of better better words, he was the leader in the, over there, he was. kind of uh, taking charge, taking us place to place, both on and off movement stuff, showing us around DC, kind of the ins and outs, everything that that we needed to do, the way we needed to behave, and the way we needed to present ourselves. Did in a very great professional way, community leader and an immigrant himself. I'd like to welcome Eddie Calderon to the podcast. Eddie, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, buenas tardes. Good evening. Happy to be joined by two amazing people that I, I, I really uh, enjoy having uh, in, in shared spaces. I, I loved spending DC with all of you, and I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of this this podcast. No, no, we are humbled to be to have you here. And I know it took a while, like coming back, we were all super busy and we, we couldn't get it done last week. But now thank you for being on right now. First of all, Eddie, I'd like to ask how you got started and how you got involved in the movement. What organization brought you in to begin with? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I grew up undocumented. Me and my mom crossed the border in the early 2000s. I actually was in a detention center as a kid. Uh, my mom and I were in a detention center. And one of my, my biggest memories is remembering when uh, we walked across the, the desert. You know, we were starving and we had no more water. And one of the first things um, when we were apprehended by Border Patrol, my mom had very broken English and she looked up. And asked the officer, she said, hey, you know, we're, we're really hungry. We're really sick. We're dehydrated. Can my baby have some water and food? And um, I had never seen my mom cry throughout the entire journey of crossing the border. Uh, up until here, the Border Patrol agent turned around and threw a pack of saltine crackers at my mom. Now, I don't know if y'all have ever eaten saltine crackers, but not the most... <laughs> You know, they're, they're very dry. Especially in, the, in like Especially when you're thirsty. That's, that's exactly. Like, wow. So my, my mom like cried. She like cried there and held me tight. And um, from there we were transferred into a detention center. And I don't have the best memory of it because I was only like five years old. But I mean, the recollection of, of remember, I remember how cold it was. I remember it was really gross looking. Um, and I remember hearing people consistently cry. The people were consistently crying. Um, my mom recollects that the agents try to tell my mom that I wasn't theirs, that I wasn't my mom's kid. And my mom pulled up her shirt and she said, you see these C-section scar? That's from him. And now that I think about all the family separation that's still happening, still happening, even under this administration, I, I think about my mom having to prove her scar to prove that I was her kid. And um, just for context, how long ago was that? 2000s. 2000s. So here 2000s. we are almost 20 years later and still the same stories. Still same the same. policies too. Yeah. And I grew up in, in LA and I remember bouncing from community to community because there was ice raids all the time. I've lived in all of LA from El Monte to Azusa to East Los. I've bounced from everywhere. I moved to Colorado because we couldn't afford to live in LA. It was, it was insanity. I went to school and I went to school really blocking the idea that I was undocumented. I remember it was easier to lie about being undocumented, you know, because your friends would make jokes and you're like illegals go home and you're like, ha ha yeah. Mm -hmm. But in reality, <laughs> that was you. Right. You know, that was you. And um, that was in a time in, in, when I was in high school and from the 2009s um, time, this kind of ages me. Right. But, um, that was in a time where it wasn't as popular to be undocumented and unafraid. It wasn't as popular to be boldly undocumented and be proud mm -hmm. to, to come out of the shadows. But I started to see how awful our people were being treated. I moved to the East Coast and started to see how worse it got. And for me, I started advocating with Planned Parenthood. I started going from door to door uh, advocating for Planned Parenthood. And then from there, I started to advocate with this amazing organization called Make the Road. Make the Road Pennsylvania was uh, a, a truly one of the biggest blessings I've ever had as far as community organizing and, and really educating me in the movement through various leadership programs. I then moved to Arizona where I started working with uh, Mi Familia Bota. I've worked with Lucha, just amazing, powerful organizations in the movement that have grown my leadership and pushed me where I am now, where I, I get to be the director of Arizona Jews for Justice and uh, continue to advocate for my community, both from my faith and, you know, from my peoplehood of, uh, of understanding the collective struggle. Uh, it's, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> I think um, as someone who has been in the movement for as long as you have, how have you seen the movement kind of change and adapt to 
to new messaging and different like ideologies. Definitely. I think that the community is adapting to its times. We adapt with how we go. I think that COVID was a huge example to show us what what can be adapted as far as community organizing to take one-on-one calls on Zoom to keep up with your your people through various different forms of technology. I also think that the movement's highlighting youth, um, and we're, we've seen the power that our youth has. You know, like if if I look at the history in Arizona with Arpaio, I I, I know the people who who collectively took him down. You know, I can I can. I can point you to the leaders when they, and at that time, you know, they've, they've grown up, but mm. <laughs> at that point they were youth leaders and it goes to show you how much, uh, the power our, our youth has. And I love seeing that our movement is starting to really realize that, you know, because our, our movement, uh, I, I believe it, it used to be where it was all about like the older guys, the older cats were the ones that were leading it. And the older folks were the ones that were like, Hey, like we're going to take on leadership. But I think the movement's evolving to really giving an opportunity to some of the, the young up and coming organizers. And that's beautiful to see. Yeah. I think it was, it's uh, a long time coming also, not just in the movement, but for our, our people in general, for us being Latinos, you get raised, you respect your elders. What your elder says goes because they've lived longer. They know better than you. Mm-hmm. And I think we follow that to a fault as to like when uh, people in older generations maybe have not kept up with new things happening. They still want to do things in the same old way, even though it's clearly not working. And yet we're still told to follow blindly. But now it is, like you said, starting to turn that new that that into new directions. I like, okay, even though this person is younger, their ideas are fresh and their ideas have merit. Right. This is not we're not just kids over here spitting out little dreams. We are actual people with actual ideas trying mm-hmm. to make a difference in a new way. And the more people start to uh, accept and to support these new these new ideas, I think that's where progressives can actually move forward and actually start making a difference. Yeah, most definitely. I think adaption is key. Adaption is survival. And I think that that's one of the biggest highlights being immigrants. That's the whole story of us being immigrants. We adapt. We adapt to where our surroundings, where we are, you know, it's adaption through fear and for the most part adaption to survive, but it's adaption. And I think that's one of the core things that keeps our immigrant communities still here and fighting is that adaption piece one uh, thing that i also want to highlight is that you not only had to face all all of your obstacles in being an immigrant being undocumented having to learn english and learn everything that you have to do but at the same time also keep up with your faith and Mm -hmm. something that i've seen is especially in a lot of youth is that their faith is either they either lose it Mm -hmm. they they just deny it or like they go all all without it in order just to not have one more thing to, to worry about mm-hmm. uh, how has faith kind of kept you going and how have you learned to keep your faith? Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing question. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you because I think that for the majority of the part, faith has actually been something that's damaging for a lot of our communities. It's something that's been used to oppress our communities. Whereas for me, luckily in, in my Judaism, I have used it as a grounding. I've used it as a, a, a sense of inspiration and hope. Uh, for me, my, my Judaism pushes me to continue to ask questions, to not not hold one thing as the true answer, but to ponder, to analyze, to to really look in depth into what am I believing? How do I, why do I believe that I should do this? Why do I look at Torah and, and think, okay, this is the right thing to do? Why do I look at God and think, okay, this is this is hopeful? I believe it's a grounding matter for me. It helps me keep hope. 
you know, because when, when you grow up in our immigrant led communities and you, you grow up undocumented, it's hard to have hope when everything goes against you. I mean, we see it right now with a parliamentarian choosing to override what communities are saying. You know, it's hard to keep hope, but I think faith is a key thing that grounds us. It's what keeps going. And I think that for me and my, my Judaism is what holds me to the ground during the toughest storms. Do you have any advice for anyone who would want to kind of merge their organizing and their activism with their own type of faith? Or how did you do it? Yeah, I, I look at, at like what what translates to what the work I'm doing. For me, being an immigrant, understanding the idea of the exodus and under, understanding the historical side of the Jewish community fleeing from Egypt, of being immigrants. And I mean, we have a commandment of treating the stranger more than 36 times, how to treat a stranger. You know, that is, is how I translate my work. Famous rabbi uh, Abraham Heschel, who walked with MLK, he said, I learned from, they asked him, like, what did you learn from, you know, being with MLK? And he said, I learned that I could pray with my feet. And understanding that that direct action is, is, is what faith meant to him, is what his work meant to him. So when we look at folks who are looking to use faith, see how it grounds you. See how you can relate and translate your own faith into, into the work that you're doing. I love that you're doing that because, like you said, right now, and uh, myself included, whenever people start to bring up faith, start to bring up religion, the first thing that comes to mind is how damaging it is. Right. And at the same time... I grew up in a hugely Catholic household, so well, my family used it as a means to keep the family together, to keep praying, to keep hoping that better days are going to come ahead. So I see both sides. I can see how people need it and people use it in order to get through their day and to help other people and to do it in a damaging way. So to for someone like you to be using your faith and showing an example of how it can be used for good, I, I think it's another step forward, and, and I personally thank you for that. Because we need that whether or not you are you have a faith that you follow or anything like that. We need to understand that there are people who do and there are people who do it for good. Mm -hmm. The ones that use it for damaging, they are the, the they're few, but they're the loudest. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the what gets headlines. And that's what gets attention. Right. So I, I definitely want to uh, thank you for for that, for showing the correct way of doing something like that. Yeah, definitely. And I. I, I I think that some, so much has been tarnished and damaged by faith, right? But I think that one of the core things uh, at its purest, what we're as a faith leader and what we look to mobilize as faith leaders, we, our end game is to make this world a better place. Yeah. And in Judaism, we have this term called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. We go a little bit further than that. It's like, how do we repair each individual world? How do we try to repair ourselves, our own worlds, to be able to help? to be able to support folks. I think that faith leaders should have that as a common goal. It, it shouldn't be about yourself, but about the collective good in, in general. Yeah. That's very well put. Uh, moving a little bit along to one of the things that I wanted to talk to with you about is while we were out in D.C., we were asking our senators and representatives to support the Build Back Better. And kind of we were we were on under the assumption that this is we're, we're super close. Plan C is going to pass. And now with everything that happened with the parliamentarian saying that they are not going to support this, that this shouldn't happen. First of all, how are we in the movement right now with that with that news and what are steps moving forward? Yeah, I think that we we've been disappointed and let down so many times that I think we're almost prepared for this. It's almost traumatic. 
that we've we've gone so used to trauma behind immigration reform that we're always pushed to the side. We're never a priority for mm-hmm. any uh, under any party. We're never been a priority. We're we're a good headline. Immigration reform is an amazing headline during uh, presidential races, during elections. It's a great headline, but in, in theory, we've never been put in the front to be pushed for uh, actual immigration reform. Um, and I feel like our communities are already adapting. We've adapted to every single loss that we've ever had, and we're adapting to this. Anything that comes our way is just another step of, of adaption of what we will do to overcome this. And our communities are, are going to show that we're fed up with this. You know, We have full democratic control right now to be able to make something happen. The president can act upon to make legislative uh, immigration support without legislative. Mm-hmm. He can do something. He doesn't need to have two senators holding him back. He can step up for our communities, and we know that that can happen. So I think that a lot of folks and various organizations are already working on what are our next steps. Yeah, I think after how many years has it been, like 21, 22 years of like failures? Yeah, since the DREAM Act, I believe 2000, right? 2000, yeah, 2001. 2001. There. That's yeah. an incredibly long time to be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, like a lot of people didn't even tell us, like, you know, although DACA is is, is such a, a Penske little support system, a lot of folks told us that DACA would never happen, mm-hmm. you know, and that was under President Obama. And that was un- knowing that Obama deported so many families, so many people. But and, uh, an important thing is that, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was not Congress. That was not legislation that did that. That was Obama correct. that put it forward like, hey. This is happening. Yeah. And every president has had that power. Biden has that power right now. Correct. So like you said, he he can do it. We've seen it done. With this parliamentarian that's that's happening, I cannot stress enough in every single episode, this is not an elected official. This person should not have even a say in what's going on, especially when it comes down to Congress and the Senate. Yeah, definitely. We should be, you know, we should have somebody who actually represents us, not somebody who can uh, just give their opinion for hundreds of thousands of families that are directly affected. And then they decide the fate. Like it shouldn't be like that. This person was not elected into office. This person was not voted from. I didn't walk or canvas to have this person represent me. So why should our entire communities be affected by the, the comments and expressions of this one person? Yeah. I I think even with our elected officials, I, I I find it kind of hard to understand how in the presidency, Trump had so much power to almost become a dictator. But now Biden doesn't have enough power to do all of this. Like, where is the where is the disconnect? Like, why is nothing being done? Like, is he scared of being called a dictator as well? Like, is he the one that doesn't want to impose his will, quote unquote, to because from, from my understanding of laws and stuff and even not to veer off topic too much, but even with like him reestablishing like the migrant protection protocols or right. Title 42, um, he has the power to stop all of that. And he oh, legally yeah. could have. Oh, yeah, most certainly. Immigration is with his, within his executive branch. It's it's with it, within his reach to, to be able to make 
changes, you know, and, and you're a hundred percent right. Trump was doing things left and right. And we were like, well, how is he doing this? He was doing things left and right. And here we are saying, well, like, oh, I can't do that because, you know, it's easier to just shift the blame to Congress and saying, well, it's Congress's fault. Mm-hmm. But like, wh- how are you owning up to your promises to, to families? You know, MPP is still happening. The Remain in Mexico policy is still happening. Mm-hmm. We still have families that are going through awful conditions on and in detention centers. The bottom line is immigration reform and immigration support has never been a champion topic. It always shifts to something else. And until we get a leader that's proud and bold to stand up for our communities, I, I sincerely don't see us having dramatic change because Blatantly, Democrats or Republicans don't champion immigration reform. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we're more political capital when it's popular, where we're liked and kind of supported. But as that goes down and as the value of us and, and like the political sphere goes down, so does any action, which is very disappointing. Well, right. at, at the same time, also, it, it uh, I believe every election cycle, immigration does get a little bit more valuable to them. Because every election, every two years, every four years, there's new young voters, fam, uh, sons and daughters of immigrants that are being able to be eligible to vote. So every year that number grows and grows. So maybe not now they've been pushing it off, pushing it off. Come 2024, they're going to be like, oh, now there's a huge percentage of voters. Now I'm going to go ahead and focus myself on this topic to get all those young voters, those kids of immigrants that are now voting. Look, I'm going to help your parents out. Vote for me. Mm -hmm. And once again, we're being used as pawns in this political game. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, our people are used to this. Our our people are used to, unfortunately, being treated like this. And that's why we hold each other towards our own solutions and, and building a community that works for all of us equitably. Exactly. And like you said, we've adapted and we kept on working and we're going to continue to keep on working like uh, most of America is going to be taking the next few weeks off, you know, Mm -hmm. being holiday season, everything, everyone's taking their vacations. We're still going to be keeping at it Mm -hmm. we're going to keep reminding these senators, these representatives that, you know, they still got a job to do. And uh, you you really shouldn't go home, you know, to to your families and be happy and do all this stuff, knowing that you've left thousands, if not millions of families out in the cold without having a resolution to their year when you had the power to do that all along. So, I mean, we're going to continue doing that right here. And uh, I noticed that you're also going to continue in your work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing the next uh, few weeks and, and what your organization does? Cause we haven't even talked about that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, our organizations, uh, you know, being Jewish, we, we don't observe the, the holidays coming up. So uh, we're, we're still boots on the ground. We support uh, a lot of families, uh, especially Afghan families. We support asylum-seeking families and our undocumented communities. We try to uh, fill the gap in between the resettlement process. So a lot of folks, uh, although they're they're able to get supported with housing, they don't have anything else, you know. And we try to be that support system by having our community, our, our Jewish community here, is amazing in do- in donating. We are able to donate from toys, food, furniture, you name it, to a lot of these families are. I mean, are desperate and they have nothing. We were able to support an asylum-seeking family from Venezuela with a full bedroom. They were telling us that they were sleeping on the floor. You know, mm-hmm. that to us is is that to us is like that little repair of the world that we can 
individually repair folks and at Arizona Juice for Justice. I also work for uh, Ari Litsetic, uh, where we try to bring that into a national perspective of being able to help uh, immigrants on a national level. Our main platform is to view it through two lenses and the way we support our community, our immigrant-led, our immigrant community led by by me who's directly impacted. But our, our vision is to help folks with direct goods and to advocate politically. So while we acknowledge that, you know, folks need help, we're able to support them with that direct support as well as targeting the biggest issue, our, our systemic issue and where folks are are needing help in the first place. And that's amazing that you guys are able to do both advocacy and direct action. Mm-hmm. A lot of orgs kind of focus on one or the other, but mm-hmm. having the ability and the capacity to do both is really amazing, especially with all of the asylum seekers that have been coming in. Yeah, well, we've helped over, you know, we're over 50,000 asylum seekers that we've been able to support in wow. collaboration with other organizations. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're just trying to, you know, I, I think about it like when I was in a detention center, when I was crossing, I wish I would have had the support, you know, so how can we give back? How can we do something to make a change? And, um, you know, as well as fighting anti-Semitism within our organization, we know that so many correlations with the hate that our undocumented community uh, suffers. There's the same folks, the white supremacy is the same that attacks, and you know, Jews with anti-Semitism. And our organization tries to call that out, really try to bring education when, when, whenever we're advocating as well. And that's another thing that we bring up every week here at We Are Home Arizona is that all the numbers that we throw around right here, where, whether it be the 11 million undocumented, whether it be the 750,000 people on DACA or um, whether it be the 50,000 people that you guys are helping, those are individual lives. That is an individual person. That is the, that is a person that has a past that you're giving a future to. And so each one of those is extremely important. So when we bring up numbers, we fully understand that the every single one of these is a soul. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important, you know, from a, a, a macro scale, it helps us see the, the volume, the sheer volume. But at a micro scale, like we should also look at the individuality because like each and every one of us is a story, is, is a family, has feelings, goes, you know, picks up coffee every day, goes to work, mm-hmm. thinks about having a family or not having a family, has loved ones. Like at the grand scheme of things, scheme of things we, we look at the individuality of, of those folks and to show that we're not we're not just a number. We're we're a people. I know in, in a lot of our, our communities organizing we kind of tend to focus on the undocumented population, but mm-hmm. within the realm of like immigration, there are a lot of like statuses that right. aren't, you know, super that that don't have permanence. You also have asylum seekers. How do you as an organization kind of merge all of the topics in immigration and, you know, all the stuff going on into one kind of direct line of, of advocacy or work. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that oftentimes we we fall victim to just a tunnel vision of, of one group of directly impacted folks. But just like, as you said, I mean, with immigration in, in itself has such a, vari- a variety of topics and it's such a hard law to practice based off of feedback I've, I've heard from immigration lawyers where you see things that fall in from being an asylum seeker, having TPS, having DACA, having a work permit, having a visa, uh, being a refugee. What does that mean? What type of support can they get? And, and, and for us, fundamentally, we look at who needs help, who needs help at what time. 
and and that has levels to it right where we see that some folks who are asylum seekers have some sort of help we try to help where they're with where they don't receive it mm-hmm. or per se some some afghan refugees are getting you know governmental support well maybe there's things that they're not getting helped with and that's where we step up we try to just be there be be there and in support wherever folks need it when with our undocumented community helping them find resources to support their families is a blessing in itself as well uh, and i really love all the work that you guys do i oh, think thank you. the the common threads of of i guess every immigrant is you know coming to a new place sometimes you don't speak the language um that common bond of you know leaving everything behind and and making and carving out a new home i think that's ex- extremely powerful and it binds us all together yeah most definitely i just had over the previous holiday we had dinner with a afghan family young a young doctor and her spouse was a diplomat and i i just sat there with her young child and i thought to myself like wow like this could have been me and my mom mm-hmm. you know and we didn't have to speak the same language to know what we we knew what we felt mm-hmm. and and that's the beauty of 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 immigrant communities you know that despite the struggle despite the issues the trauma like we still strive to survive and more than just survive to try to thrive that's beautiful exactly together we find community and we build community uh lastly if someone wants to help out whether by giving a donation whether it be furniture or monetary donation or even time donation where where can they go where can they get information yeah thank you so much for that you can email me directly at eddie at uh, arizona that's az Jews, the number four justice.com that uh, is my direct email if not hit us up at arizona jews for justice.org uh, send us an email get involved with us if you have any uh, furniture that you're you know trying to give to that's that's in good quality that you want to go to a good family let us know we we'd love to get your support visit us on our website arizona jews for justice.org and on facebook follow us um, try to get involved remember like you know it doesn't have to be one tunnel where we can only do one sort of advocacy like we can do it all y'all very well said thank you so much eddie for being thanks with so much, us today eddie. thanks man and we we'll hope to have you here in the future we are home is a fuerte network production this episode was hosted by dani orona and carlos navarro special guest eddie calderon graphics by karina dominguez executive produced by dominic medina and zenia orona The thoughts and opinions on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Fuerte Arts Movement.